I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So, a, a, a priest, a preacher, and a rabbi walked into their favorite bar, where they would meet together a couple times a week to talk shop, and on this particular afternoon, someone made the comment that, you know, preaching to people really isn't that hard, but you know what would be a challenge is preaching to a bear, preaching to a bear. So one thing led to another, drinks were involved, and they decided to do an experiment. They would all go out into the woods, find a bear, preach to it, and attempt to convert it. So seven days later, they've all come back after having tried that, and they're together to discuss the experience. Father Flannery, who has his arm in a sling, is on crutches, has various bandages, but no major wounds. He goes first. Well, he says, I went into the woods to find me a bear, and when I found him, I began to read to him from the catechism. But that bear wanted nothing to do with me, so he began to slap me around. So I quickly grabbed my holy water, sprinkled him, and Holy Mary, Mother of God, he became as gentle as a lamb. The bishop is coming next week to give him confirmation and First Communion. <laughs> Pastor Billy Bob spoke next. He was in a wheelchair with an arm and both legs in casts. He had an IV drip. In his best fire and brimstone oratory, he claimed, well, brothers, you know that I don't sprinkle. I went out and I found me a bear. Then I began to read to my bear from God's holy word, but that bear wanted nothing to do with me. So I took hold of him and we began to wrestle. We wrestled down the hill and up the hill and down another until we came to a creek whereby I dunked him and baptized his hairy soul. And just like you said, he became as gentle as a lamb, Father. We spent the rest of the day praising Jesus. They both looked down at the rabbi who was in bad shape, lying in a hospital bed. He was in a full body cast and traction with IVs and monitors running in and out of him, bruises everywhere, cuts. The rabbi looks up and says, looking back on it, circumcision may not have been the best way to start. <laughs> Probably not a joke I should tell in church. But Paul talks about that, doesn't he? Baptism, circumcision, theological disagreements. These things all have a long history of dividing religiously devout people, presumably even bears. And this has been true since the earliest days of the church. Baptism, as we know, is the covenantal marker of God's people in Christ, just as circumcision was the marker of the old covenant. But the point is that baptism was public, visible, costly, and just like today, there were disagreements around it from the very beginning. Today we hear from Paul's first epistle to Corinth. We heard from it last week, and we'll hear from it for another three weeks after this. And we need to be reminded that this is a letter. And so for us, it is as if we're listening to one side of a phone conversation. We have to supply, therefore, the historical context, the background. And the story goes then something like this. Paul knew this community really well. 
Corinth was a prosperous Roman colony, a bustling international center of trade and manufacturing and industry. By comparison, one commentator says of Athens that Athens might have seemed like a slumbering university city dreaming of its greater past, but not Corinth. You see, Corinth was the Manhattan, the New York City, the Dubai of its day. It was a major port city in the ancient world. In fact, boats would be taken out of the water and moved across an ancient road called the Diokos, which was built as a road with rollers for boats to move across it six centuries before Jesus shows up on the scene. This allowed sailors, you see, to avoid sailing around the Malia Cape in the south of the Peloponnese. In fact, there was a saying that even existed, see Malia twice and die. Buckets of cash were filled with these tolls, with the manufacturing of leather and other goods. Business was booming. We know Aquila and Priscilla from the book of Acts started a leather manufacturing business. It exploded. The city was a culture of success, in other words, of competition, of self-achievement, of self-promotion, a city where social climbing was the name of the game. And thus, autonomy and freedom from constraints were deeply, deeply valued by virtually everyone. But it was also a religious center. And you can go there today and see this. There were lots of temples to Greek and Roman gods, including Apollo and Asclepius. But all of those stood in the shadow of a growing emperor cult, worship of the emperor. So Paul... He knows all of this. He knows of the strategic importance of this city, and he therefore visits as a missionary, living in Corinth for a year and a half. He preaches the gospel. He starts a church. He works with Aquila and Priscilla. He preaches Christ crucified. He refuses the rhetoric proclaimed, the wisdom of the philosophers in the agora and at the fountains, proclaiming instead the foolishness that is true wisdom the cross. And then, and then he leaves. He goes to Ephesus. So why does Paul write 1 Corinthians? Good question. As he moved on, Paul starts to hear in Ephesus and elsewhere that divisions are plaguing the Corinthian church. And these divisions are rooted in five problems. And so his letter is structured in five sections, each corresponding to one of the problems, which are first, tribalism and personality cults around pastors. That never happens anymore, right? Two, issues of sexuality. Three, issues of food. Four, church gathering problems. And five, their understanding of the resurrection. That's the only one that's really doctrinal in nature. You see, our reading for today, though, flags that first problem, the sin of division, of personality cults, or more accurately, what the text actually calls the Greek text, schismata, the sin of schism. The Corinthian church is plagued with a lot of things, economic and social division, strife between the elite and the lower class, disagreements about the relative value of spiritual gifts, division over philosophical differences. Some are even upset with Paul himself. But these divisions, you see, are much more about power struggles than they are about doctrine. It's interesting because people will often refer, you know, to the age of the New Testament 
saying we need to be New Testament Christians. We need to get back to the New Testament church as if the early church was a golden age of discipleship. But the church has always been full of sinners who find their only hope for change and growth in the grace of the cross of Christ. So Paul tries to help them understand that truth again. But the problem is this. After Paul left Corinth, different teachers came in and they each had little groupies. Some were of Paul, some were of Apollos. You've heard this, some were of Cephas. But then there were, the, there were the truly spiritual ones, those who were of Christ, those unwilling to submit to any human leader who hyper-spiritually bypass human pastors. Paul is not buying it. He doesn't even defend those who are of him, by the way, but he calls out the sin of division full stop. And he knows that division functions like cancer within a community. It is like a nuclear bomb in fragile churches. And so he writes to address this with clarity and with force and chiefly with pastoral love. And so Paul exhorts the Corinthians to simply be of the mind of Christ, he says, to exhibit the same mindset, to find their spiritual center at the foot of the cross where they most clearly meet the grace of their Lord. This is a call to unity, but it is not a call to uniformity. Certainly not in such a pluralistic context. He knows that there are incredible differences. But Paul's instruction, you see, is fundamentally a call to be humble, to humility. It seems that he believes there's no Christian church, no theologian, no denomination, no pastor, no priest, nobody has a monopoly on the mind of Christ. Just when we think we've mastered the gospel and exclusion to those who really don't know it, those around us, we've lost the very plot line of the gospel, the one that redeems, restores, reconciles, and calls us to be about the same in community. But then finally, the sacrament of baptism figures large in this passage as well, which raises an interesting rebuke for the church. I mean, this is the very thing that should have been a source for unity. The very thing that should have been a source for unity has now become a source for division, has become a badge of merit. The very thing that is called to bind together people from every tongue, tribe, and nation before the throne in worship has become a tool, a mechanism for social standing. Paul finds this incredulous, saying hyperbolically that Christ didn't even send me to baptize, only to preach the gospel. Of course, Paul cares deeply about baptism. He talks about it all the time. Read Romans 6 and elsewhere. But he wants the people of God to turn together to the cross, to refuse to draw party lines which are not warranted by the same, the cross of Christ. So what does this mean for us? If you're looking for the perfect church, you will not find it here. You also won't find it anywhere else. But if you're looking for the God of grace, if you are looking for a group of sinners who seek to turn 
to the perfect one, who precisely amidst our flaws, even our rubbing each other the wrong way at points, who nevertheless seek to walk together across difference. It's my hope that that's what you'll find. For baptism, baptism is meant to lead to communion. Baptism is meant to bring us here. The church that practices communion across difference is the church that takes seriously their baptism into the cross of Christ, into Christ himself. For as we share in his cross, in the sufferings, our own annoyances of fellow Christians are relativized in the light of the surpassing glory of the light of Christ. Together, therefore, we must spur each other on towards Christ, we must be gracious with one another. Grace transforms the bear that is in our souls, the bear that comes out in community. It transforms that bear into the gentleness of a lamb. The writer Robert Ferrer Capon says, it is Jesus who is your life. If he refused to condemn you because your works were rotten, he certainly isn't going to flunk you because your faith isn't so hot. You can fail utterly and still live the life of grace. You can fold up spiritually, morally, intellectually, and still be safe. Because at the very worst, he says, all you can be is dead. And for him who is the resurrection of life, that just makes you his cup of tea. Christ calls us to himself. Every Sunday, we come to this rail and we kneel around it at his cross at his altar, to recall, to remember, to participate in the mystery, to become who we are already in Christ by virtue of baptism. We are a communion of people who walk together across difference, who refuse to fracture along the same fault lines of surrounding institutions. Our identity is not chosen, but it is given as sheer gift from Christ. And most fundamentally, we are those who are sinners, saved by grace, who find a place at the foot of the cross, which is foolishness to the world, Paul writes. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let us be receptive to that power, power which has the ability to transform, to renew, to restore, to redeem, to reconcile us such that we might be the people through whom light has shined in the darkness, not because it is our own light, but because we are with the one who is light. Amen.